Rethink Retail, the evolution of retail in today's connected world. Welcome to the Rethink Retail Show, your source for the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. Join host Julia Raymond, Global Director of Research at Valtech, a global digital agency focused on strategy and transformation in retail, as she explores the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. This episode of Rethink Retail, sponsored by Valtech, where experiences are engineered. Hi, thanks for tuning in. Our guest today represents a household luggage brand that might as well be a proprietary eponym at this point, like calling Tissues Kleenex, and that brand is Samsonite. It's the world's largest luggage company with about $4 billion in sales across a large portfolio of brands. And that includes Samsonite, of course, American Tourister, eBags, Hartman, High Sierra, Toomey. And with that, I welcome to the show Charlie Cole. He is the Global Chief E-Commerce Officer at Samsonite, Chief Digital Officer at Toomey, and Active Advisor. Charlie, will you first tell us just a little bit about your background and how you, you know, came into this role? Yeah, and, and thanks really for having me on. I'm kind of a dive-in-the-wool digital guy. I've been in some form of digital since I entered the work reality when I was 21, and it started as a digital marketing thing and kind of helped build an agency, which was eventually acquired and moved to e-commerce after that. I was actually running e-commerce for Lucky Brand Jeans at a very young age, around 26, and have kind of caught the e-commerce bug ever since then and have done a variety of startups, have done a private equity-backed company that was acquired. And now I came to Samsonite by way of when they acquired Toomey. So I was the chief digital officer at Toomey. And upon that acquisition, it became very clear that we all had a lot to learn from each other because Samsonite was this absolute wholesale powerhouse, right? That understood how to distribute products and create products better than anyone on earth. And Toomey was very much a direct consumer company. And so ultimately my job metamorphosized into what it is today, which is really kind of trying to bring cohesion to all of our digital touch points, whether direct, meaning like a Tumi.com or a samsonite.co.jp or indirect, like an Alibaba, an Amazon, a JD.com, a Mercado Libre, whatever. And it's just been a really cool gig because you have, as you said, Julie, in the intro, you have the most well-known name in the space in Samsonite and probably three or four of the top 10 in Tumi, American Tourist, and eBags. And so being able to use that kind of overall portfolio to grow digitally, and I hate to use the platitude digital transformation, but I really do feel like that's what our team has led over the last two years. And we still got a ways to go, but it's been a pretty killer gig. Yeah. And I love that overview. It's really interesting to hear that you kind of transition just directly from digital marketing to e-commerce at such a young age, managing Lucky's brand. And over the years, how have you seen e-commerce change? I mean, now people are just starting to call it just commerce and there's connected yeah, right. commerce. And yeah. You know, for me, I think that e-commerce evolved in a couple of different waves, right? So at first, people kind of put up websites and just had them be an extension of their average store, right? And I don't mean to use average in a negative way, but if you sold 10 things in your store, you told 10 things on your website, and that was cool. And then we entered the era of sort of customization and segmentation. So with like the Nike IDs of the world and product segmentation, now e-commerce became a destination that allowed you to do things that in retail stores would be very, very hard or cost prohibitive. Within the case of like a Toomey, we had a lot more SKUs on our website because frankly, luggage can be fairly big. It can take up a lot of square footage. And so to have a 1200 square foot store, you probably just don't have the amount of space to showcase every single thing you want to make. And then over the last called five years, there's been this crescendo of e-commerce being completely disrupted by the marketplaces, right? And I use the word marketplaces or multi-brand retailers fairly interchangeably, but the Amazons and Alibaba's of the world 
have changed what it means to be an e-commerce retailer. And especially has changed what it means to be an effective direct e-commerce retailer. So Toomey.com, Samsonite.com, we've all offer a truly differentiated experience because you know, marketplaces exist on this earth for really one purpose, and that's offered everything to everyone at the lowest price as possible. And then they ultimately commoditize everything. So to be really special in e-commerce, you've had to change. But the reality is this, I came from a very analytical background, and that's one thing that hasn't changed, right? E-commerce is really a analyst's dream because of the complete transparency you have to the data pipeline. So that was the skill set that I sort of founded my career on, and ultimately it served me really well. But now it's just kind of thinking about things at a far more idiosyncratic level as it pertains to product segmentation, after-sales service, customer experience, et cetera, largely because of the complete emergence of marketplaces dominating the space. Yeah, and that's interesting because I was reading some of the interview you had from Marie Driscoll, I think about a year ago, and you mentioned just the importance of analytics and data and the fact that the big marketplace players don't share a lot of that sales data back with uh, suppliers or brands. And you were kind of wondering, you know, will Alibaba and JD have success compared to Amazon because they do share back that data? It's a dream, right? Yeah. I never want to sound preachy because look, I'm not opening up my Google Analytics for our partners either. You know what I mean? There is a certain thing for trying to keep your data to yourself because ultimately it's a competitive advantage, right? The more I know about a Tumi customer on Tumi.com, the better I can serve that person and hopefully I capture that sale. So I don't expect Nordstrom and Macy's and Kohl's and all of our best partners to just hand over a login to their Google Analytics. So I totally appreciate the opaque nature of some of the data points, but that said, you know, Alibaba, with the work we do with them in China, it, it darn near is like having Google Analytics for your wholesale channel. What it allows us to do is we find ourselves being a hell of a lot more aggressive on advertising. We're much more inclined to give them an exclusive product or work with them specifically on a collaboration for single stay or whatever it may be. And that's because we can hold those higher risk, higher investment things accountable, right? We can make sure that they were worth the money we invested in them. So I do think there's an open question on what's the right amount of data to share when you're a marketplace? And obviously I'm biased, right? I want all of it. But at the same time, what we have seen is we're much more willing to invest in certain things with Alibaba than other people simply because of that transparency. Yeah, and it's probably easier to just go through Alibaba than to do a lot of second party or third party data to marketplaces and try to match. Yeah. And you hear it from the proverbial horse's mouth, right? Like it's not like you have any sort of translation or indexing or whatever it may be. So they're a fun partner to work with. What's your take on them, you know, now saying that they're going to let U.S. firms sell globally and in U.S. on their B2B platform? Do you think they're going to get a lot of traction? You know, it's a weird time in America right now, man. Like normally, Julia, if I was just kind of evaluating that statement on its merits, I would say, yeah. Like I think most people are looking for points of distribution, are looking for data transparency, and Alibaba offers a lot of that. But this kind of Sino-American conflict that's happening with the trade war in China, I just think any time an American business sees a Chinese brand right now, they're like, oh my gosh, is this a huge risk to get involved with just because the rules are ever changing? So the only reason I would doubt its success is really more of kind of the meta environment as opposed to their specific offering. Yeah, and that makes sense totally because there's just a lot going on right now when it comes to that trade There's a lot of noise, man. There's just a lot of noise. Yeah, totally. Well, back to just more of the travel segment, I guess. I kind of wanted to pick your brain about, you know, what are the travelers today doing that's different than the travelers from 10, 20 years ago? I mean, how how is consumer behavior changing? Well, to go back to like this meta point, in the last 10 to 20 years, you've had airlines charge more for baggage and kind of get to like these ticky-tack charges as to like putting stuff below a plane. <laughs> and so one of the biggest changes has been this real evolution of carry-ons and underseaters and travel backpacks, et cetera. That's one that we've, we've been very 
excited about and we make amazing stuff to help you travel in a much smaller form factor. And the other thing is this sort of interchangeability of backpacks is cool, right? Like as somebody who all through my twenties, I wore like a super fancy messenger bag that I could slim crossbody and stuff like that. Being able to walk into a boardroom with a backpack and not get side-eyed is a really cool trend that I, I hope continues. And so, you know, you see some of the stuff that Chumi makes in particular, like these backpacks are, are works of art, right? It's not just like the, the Jansport that you used to rip when you're in eighth grade. You know what I mean? No. Like this stuff is high quality materials. Like we're making stuff in carbon fiber. Samsonite's making stuff that has like RPET. So the backpack has become sort of an accepted business accessory, which personally, I am so happy. Like I think backpacks are so much more comfortable than any sort of briefcase or like that. So those kind of trends are really cool. But the one that we are still talking a lot about and I sort of hate the combination words. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't like it when we like make it like Kanye and Kim, Kim Ye. Like, I'm not about the yeah, combination words. Yeah, or the word uh, fidgetal. Yeah, it, exactly. But yeah. I'm about to use one. So first off, let's fully condemn combination words instantly. And now I'm going to use one to be a complete hypocrite. Let's hear it. <laughs> yeah, and, and that is this idea of leisure travel, right? So leisure travel is this concept of, and I do it all the bloody time, which is, I have to go somewhere for business. I'm going to piggyback three, four days on the back of that for fun. Yeah, I'm doing that next month. (laughs) Yeah, you travel to London for work and the work ends on a Thursday. Why not hang out in London till Sunday, right? And have some fun. And so that in itself is an interesting challenge, right? Because I think we all kind of compartmentalize our work and personal lives, right? Like we we have kind of our suit, our, our dress down work and our kind of casual and being able to give people the stuff they need to do that stuff effectively is really cool. And it's also, there's a lot of tactical nature to it. So being able to help customers like understand the value of a packing cube, which I never did before I worked for Tumi and now I can't live without them. Those kind of travel trends are the ones that I think are the funnest to play around with in our industry. I love that. And uh, I do love packing cubes as well. I have discovered them not too long ago. So on my first couple days at Tumi, the CEO at Tumi at the time who eventually sold the business to Samson, a guy named Jerome Griffith, Jerome was telling me about the wonders of packing cubes and I was kind of making fun of him. And I'm like, come on, man. Like I've been packing my own suitcase for 10 years and I travel more than anyone I know. And he's like, just trust me, it'll change your life. And sure enough, as is usually the case, Jerome was 100% right. And like, once you go there, you're like, why did I not do this before? And I'll tell you one other thing that is especially true when you have kids. My wife and I have a 15 month old now. And like this little thing has so much crap and so much stuff. And more importantly, like everything with a child, it's essential you get to that thing instantly, right? So if your kid's crying and you need to find the bottle and the pacifier, boom, you have a certain color packing cube in your carry-on, right? Like they are life-changing, but especially life-changing when you have a child. Oh yeah, especially on an airplane, people are turning around looking at you. Yeah, like everything. <laughs> people without kids that don't viable. get it. Yep, that don't <laughs> get it. Exactly right. So get some packing cubes, people. Do the right thing. Do the right thing, that's right. That's really cool. And you, you said carbon fiber. What is a backpack? <laughs> what kind of backpack has carbon fiber in it? So it, it's a line that we've done with Tumi where they basically made this pliable carbon fiber coating that we can put on top of stuff. It is so slick looking. So I find the luggage to be gorgeous, but we have a couple of backpacks where they do this coding. And if my creative director, Victor Sands was on here, he'd talk your ear off on the engineering (laughs) side. Like the thing that you got to realize in this world of marketplaces, in the world of Amazon and Alibaba, and frankly, it's really easy to make stuff now. Julia, if you and I kind of decided to start a business together and one of us was like, okay, I'll go source a factory in China. You could probably source that factory in less than a week, even if you had absolutely no idea what you were doing right? Just by asking a couple people the right questions. And so it's really easy to make commoditized stuff. 
But when you start talking to like Victor uh, Toomey and Paul at Samsonite, and you actually talk to guys, you realize these dudes are full-blown engineers who are like making things that you and I could never even fathom. And that's what I really dig about our brands is that I can look people in the eye. I can look my family members in the eyes like, yeah, man, like we make the best stuff on earth. I get to see these factories and I get to see the machines that we literally invented to make this stuff. And it's a fun challenge as a brand because now, of course I say that, right? I work at a company. Of course I say that. Now to actually prove it to consumers in a world where everything is accessible is like pretty much our full-time job, but it's, it's sweet to have engineers around us telling us what's what. Yeah, that's really interesting. It reminds me of like a, an Allbirds. I was listening to a podcast where they were talking about Allbirds and just the crazy amount of like research that went into making shoes out of the fur that they were using. I love that analogy because like I, I know Tim pretty well at Allbirds and the thing you got to appreciate is these guys are not messing around. Like they believe in their mission and they had to research to accomplish. They're not just making just another shoe. And if you do it in a genuine way, I think it's the coolest thing is also as a consumer is discover something that is not made just for commercialization. It's made because people wanted to make the best stuff on earth. And I think Albert's the perfect analogy to someone that we love looking at and seeing what they're doing in, in their world. Yeah. Cause when I think of carbon fiber, like I just think of surfboards or skimboards, whatever those are made of. So really cool to see that you guys have just such quality products because that's, I guess, probably one of the main ways you can stand out in retail. Yeah. And also to kind of do stuff that people have never done before. You know what I mean? And that's, it sounds so idealistic or, or something that everybody, of course, would want to aspire to. But in the reality, we're doing stuff with materials that people have never really seen. And carbon is one of those ones that I know Victor is particularly like stoked to mess around with. And we're talking a lot about customers and you probably have a lot that are repeat customers, I would imagine, and a lot of really good warranties that you offer that you can't get through Amazon or any other suppliers. So would you say that the 80-20 rule is kind of the same for Samsonite? Yeah, I mean, yes. Yeah, I think it's true across most of our brands. But I think, to be perfectly honest, I think our company's always really been good at telling our story. And I think the place that now we get to have the most fun with is sort of this concept of what the consumers expect from us after they buy a backpack, right? And it's this ubiquitous customer experience moniker that people have been throwing around. But for us, the way I always talk about this, uh, Julia, is you're going to pack a bag, you're going to pack a suitcase, and you're going to go on a travel. And one of two things is going to happen. You're going to have an absolute amazing trip where you completely don't even think about what's on your back or in your hand, right? It's just doing its job. Or, God forbid, like you're on a rocky street or whatever, and you pop a wheel off a suitcase. That right there is our biggest opportunity to be something truly special, right? Because I would love to- And that has happened to me, Charlie, let me tell you. I mean, cobblestones in Europe are brutal, man. Like, yeah. and, and I think for us, that's what we're realizing is that, look, Amazon is not going to do that for you. But in the reality is we have physical points of distribution around the world where we are better suited to help you than any other brand on the face of this earth in the travel area. And for us to be able to accomplish that, and, I, and I'll be very honest, we're not there yet, but it's the kind of thing that we're obsessing over now because we've always been very good at making stuff. We've been always really good at selling stuff. Now we're actually asking ourselves a question what does it mean to be truly customer centric in the year 2020? And I think that's going to be kind of my fun job over the next year. Yeah. And so you're maybe looking into opening new stores or just uh, changing them up? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, we're not opening as many stores as we have in the past, just because we are starting to get saturation in certain markets, right? So um, we'll have rapid store growth in some areas, but not as much in others. But I think it's more about how can you communicate with us, right? So I would love, Julia, if when you popped a wheel, you could hop on your WhatsApp because that's the only thing you use when you travel internationally and yeah. WhatsApp us directly and we can help solve your problem that same day. Like that's the kind of stuff that we need to get better. We need to be kind of completely channel agnostic, 
But the idea is we need to help you solve your problem wherever you are. And, and I think those are the conversations about how do we do that the best that we're having constantly. Yeah, just being super accessible. I mean, that's that's the kind of world I want to live in. Yeah, nobody wants to like have that happen. You go to samsonite.com. You're traveling internationally. You decided to not do a phone plan. And so the only way you have to talk to us is via data. Oh, crap. There's no options to talk via data. You know what I mean? Like this is the kind of stuff where consumer expectations are changing because how we communicate changes and like how fast we can get things changes. And so I think because of that, we should be kind of the leader in adopting whatever customer experience means for our consumers. And uh, it's something that on our Toomey side, I know Meg on the Toomey side is doing a killer job kind of leading that charge. And now we're asking the question as a larger corporation, what does that need to mean for us? Well, I love those examples and that sounds really cool. I mean, you're a global brand. So I want to hear from you. How do you deal? Are there things that you're looking into when it comes to localization? Because I've been hearing that a lot as a challenge that retailers face, you know, meeting the customer on their own terms, incorporating local culture, language, customs, you know? Yeah, we have a bit of an unfair advantage there and I can't take any credit for it. But part of Samsonite's culture has been for a long time, this idea of decentralization, right? And decentralization for us means we don't manage everything globally in its own some central location. So we have offices in Hong Kong, outside of Brussels, in Santiago, Chile, in Mexico City, in Seoul, in Tokyo. And so to put that simply, Julia, there's a little bit of localization in every country we work in, right? Just because we have these local people who can think about stuff. And, and for us, this decentralization goes beyond just translations and content. If you think about it, you know, the average height of a guy in Holland is very different than the average height of a guy in Japan and the average height of a guy in Peru and the average height of a guy in Boston. We have to make different backpacks for these people. Right. Like, I wouldn't I mean, even think of that. Until yeah, you said and that, and yeah. so there's a lot about the decentralized culture that Samsonite has that gives us sort of an unfair advantage in localization, but also it allows us to go beyond localization in just a superficial way. Right. So translations are important. Local currencies are important. Local language customer service is important. But that's frankly the easy part. The fun part is when you can actually start making products specifically for a market. And that's something we're uniquely set up to accomplish. Yeah. And the fact that you have people there, I mean, makes a huge difference. So I can definitely see how you have the upper hand. It helps us learn a lot too. We have kind of seven or eight digital leaders around the world. As we're sharing our notes from around the world, I mean, people are really intrigued the difference between shopping. I tell a story frequently about when I was in China and I was trying to be like the cool guy and buy people coffee. People ordered like 10 different coffees and I pulled out my Amex and they're like kind of shook their head no. I was like, oh no, it's cool. And I pulled out some the local currency, the the RMB, and they shook their head no. And then one of my coworkers kind of sighs and like, ugh, and then slaps her phone on Alipay and pays. Because like, you know, the idea of mobile payments in the United States is still pretty damn infant. You know what I mean? Like we really haven't adopted it. Meanwhile, in China, they think they'll be paperless by 2030. It's just bananas, oh, wow. right? So uh, those are the kind of things that I don't think you can know unless you have people on the ground, which is a cooler part of our company. Wow, I can't believe that by 2030, totally mobile pay. I mean, that's- Yeah, to not have paper money. It's just, I don't know, it, it seems sort of weird, but at the same time, if you haven't adopted mobile payments, like as an individual, it makes your life so much easier. Like it makes your life so much flipping easier than having to take a credit card. It doesn't seem like it should have a meaningful impact, but I would just say as a customer, the customer experience is way better. Yeah, totally. But I mean, there are still probably a good bit of older generations that won't adopt or it takes longer to adopt. I don't know. It's weird. You'd think our culture would be up to speed on that too, but. I'm now at the age, I'm, I'm 37 and I'm at the age now where I've caught myself sounding like my dad. <laughs> and, and, oh, no. and, what, and what I mean by that is someone said to me, he's like, 
oh, I'll send you a Snapchat. And I was like, dude, I don't use Snapchat. Like that's for kids. And I was like, oh my God, I'm turning into my father. And so then my wife, Alyssa and I, I basically told her that we weren't gonna text for a whole week. We were just gonna Snapchat each other so I can learn the platform. But it's a really good example. Like your point on mobile payments, if you ask somebody why, there's like, well, cause I don't do it that way. And I'm like, all right, good for you. Like enjoy your slide rule. You know what I mean? Like that is just, just, yeah. just, it's just not the right attitude, you know, cause the technological advancements that are being made, look, some of them are totally gimmicky. I get it. But some of them really are awesome from a customer experience perspective. And so it serves as a, an interesting analog for, you know, how do we innovate to make our customer experience better? Things like mobile payments, they're a really cool thing. So it's a place that we always kind of want to be on the floor. Totally. It reminds me of like if you asked someone back in the day what they needed for transportation, they would have said faster horses, not trains. Exactly. And, and you know, the I always talk about this. Trying to predict the future is really difficult. Like I think if you had asked somebody, what, five years ago, when will we have autonomous vehicles? Somebody probably would have said, eh, 10 to 15 years. And now, even though most people totally agree that autonomous vehicles would be awesome We've also learned that it's really flipping hard. <laughs> like, like yeah. gonna, and so, you know, mil, billions and billions of dollars are going to have to be invested to make this thing happen. So I think like keeping up with innovation is important, but also be willing to challenge like your core assumptions of how something is done as a consumer. Like that's really the quid pro quo that's, that's needed. There was another question I want to bring up. You've probably gotten it a lot. It's about competitor away because they have so much buzz, even though I think they're not yet profitable. Still. I, yeah, you'll never know, right? There's lots of, and the other thing I'll tell <laughs> if you I'm is I'm speculating, that, yeah. Well, I mean, and people define profitability is when they're talking about this in funny ways, right? So you can never really know. I think Away has taught us a couple of things. I think they've definitely taught us like what it means to be a great content marketer in the, in the year 2019, right? I, I got to give them a lot of credit. They are brilliant creatively. What I think we can, I can still say without a doubt is like, we know where they make their bags. Like there is nothing special about the luggage itself. So right. what does that mean? Um, it also, we also know, to your point, Julia, they play in a different set of rules, right? So last year, Samsonite was somewhere in the neighborhood of 3.8 billion in revenue and around 500 million in EBIT. So $500 million in true profit. And meanwhile, Away probably burned <laughs> 30 to $50 million. And so I think it'd be really easy for us to dismiss them as a VC flash in the pan. But the reality is this, they are really good at reaching their customers. And I think that that's something that we've been inspired by and we try to learn from them because they clearly struck a nerve with a generation that they weren't the first. Warby Parker did it, Bonobos did it, and they've all done it in a fairly similar way, which is really identify with a certain lifestyle and tell that story through content very well. That said, I still feel really confident talking to you or talking to anybody now and tell you we make much better stuff. And it's just on us to learn how to tell that story a little bit better. Yeah. And it seems like you're kind of doing that with the Toomey brand. I mean, I've been hearing more about it, you know, yeah. the past couple of years, seeing it. I think it's an opportunity where brands in general could be very myopic, right? And they could just decide, well, you know, they'll go away and I'm just going to not worry about it. And so I, I really give our company a lot of credit in the fact that we look at this stuff and we're like, wow, they're pretty good at that. Like, you know, how can we learn from, from our competitors and our partners and even from people in other industries? Like, I am always watching what Nike is doing in content marketing. I think that's really good to learn from other people, even if it's something that, hey, look, it's not our business model. Will they ever be profitable? We'll see. But at the same time, I think it's worth kind of watching and learning from whoever you possibly can. Yeah. But what about the whole, um, like, Colin Kaepernick thing? You know, that was a risk. I think it paid off. Do you think brands should be taking big risks like that, like taking a stand on on political or social issues? You know, it's funny. I gave a presentation on this last week at Commerce Next, and oh. I struggle with this idea 
of mission-based thinking from a campaign perspective and mission-based mm. thinking from a company perspective. And I can tell you that you know, we at Samsonite, one of the things I'm particularly proud to be associated with is we hired our first director of sustainability over a year ago. Like her name is Christine, right? So we're actively asking ourselves a question, what does it mean to be a more sustainable company and have less of an impact on the environment? Or you could look at it the other way, have a more positive impact on our community. It takes a lot to have a full-time employee where that's all she does. It's a big risk. Like if you're a company, like this is not something that you can point to a P&L. You can say like, oh, he or she made this much money and you know, we paid her issue this much, blah, blah, blah. You know, Christine exists really to find what our sustainability strategy as a company is going to mean. That's kind of what I think you need. I think you need it to be an emphatic part of your culture and have someone that is working on it day to day. So I think the Kaepernick campaign was great. I personally identify with the messaging. I think the messaging is the right way. But I'm more impressed by companies like what we're doing with sustainability or with what a Patagonia does to make it part of their constant mission. I hope that's the way brands go as opposed to just like one-off things here or there. Yeah. So when you said like you broke it up into two things, campaign versus company. So yeah. you thought the Nike thing was maybe more on the campaign side since it was yeah, like a trending I, topic. I do. But they, I do think that they're kind of making it part of their fabric. It was this idea to make sure we recognize athletes regardless of their societal stance. I mean, they just did a really good campaign around the U.S. Women's World Cup team. And they looked at it from perspective of, hey, don't look at how great these girls are at soccer they're literally changing the narrative for women's sports around the world. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's a meaningful thing. So I think Nike's doing it in more of a campaign-based strategy, but it's clearly becoming a larger fabric of their marketing overall. You said you have a dedicated person for sustainability. Is that something where you have like short-term and long-term plan? I mean, it seems like really involved, I guess, to... Well, and that's the thing. Like we are always very careful to, you know, overstate what we can do in a short amount of time. Like the reality is we're manufacturing a ton of stuff We have over 10,000 employees in over 100 countries. To stop the ship on a dime is not realistic. So I think we do have short-term and long-term goals. I know we've been releasing sustainability reports to our investors over the last year. We're starting to do some more sustainable collections done at RPET. This is an approximate number, Julia, but I know we've made something like 80 million plastic bottles worth of luggage. So instead of these bottles ending up in landfills, we're repurposing the plastic into backpacks and luggage, et cetera. So oh, that's awesome. We are just starting our journey. Um, and Christine would certainly be better at speaking to it than I am. But it's something I'm personally really proud of and passionate to be a part of. Well, just in general, what excites you the most? What are you most passionate about for, you know, future tech or just things that Samsonite's doing, you know, in the next five years? So I'm still really bullish on, and I'm going to use a term that I think is overused. So to say I'm excited for the future might sound a little weird, but I still think we're just scratching the surface in personalization. I'll say it really idealistically, Julia. I think every single person's landing experience on our websites should be slightly different. I truly believe that. I think the products you see, I think the color schemes, I think everything besides like the brand logos and brand DNA stuff, there is no reason why your navigation couldn't be different than mine or your homepage or your product description page couldn't be different than mine. And that doesn't go beyond just an individual. I'm talking about device. I'm talking about some country. There are so many variables in this concept of personalization where you talk about this quid pro quo that consumers and companies have today. Consumers have volunteered their data in a way. And what they're asking for companies is like, make my life easier, like make my life better. And I think that we're just scratching the surface on that. So for me, when I think about personalization, it goes back to all the way to after sales service, because it's so easy to be like, oh yeah, I use personalization. I do lookalike campaigns on Facebook. Like, (laughs) no, no, like we are just scratching the surface. I, I really think we need to do a better job of continuing to make every customer journey and treat them like individuals because 
Right now, it's still a little bit of batch and blast. And so that's the area that I'm hopeful that we can kind of set the tone over the next five years. Yeah. And would you label that as just one-to-one marketing or, no, or just I mean, personalization in general? I mean, the whole thing. Like, I mean, everything from custom product to how we do monogramming on the product to how you want stuff delivered, right? Like, so it goes back to our conversation about customer service, right? Like, do you want to talk via Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp? Like, I should know that stuff. Like, I should get on your level as a brand as opposed to dictating, like, sorry, Julia, you got to call me on the phone. Like that sucks. Like I just had to do that. I was canceling my cable television because I decided <laughs> I'm going to try to get like one of those streaming services. And I was on a chat and I was like, oh, I'm so glad I can do this via chat. And then halfway through the chat, they're like, oh, you have to call our retention department. I was like, dude, that sucks, right? That really does suck. So I mean the whole journey. I really want consumers to be able to shop, be marketed to, to be talked to, customer service, I want all of it to be on their terms as opposed to the other way around. And I think that's kind of what personalization truly promises and hasn't really pulled off yet. Yeah. And I'd love to do a panel on that because I've heard so many different opinions on, you know, how fast people think we're moving in that direction or whether or not it's even possible. I just think it's so superficial at this point, right? Like, it's just like, people have been saying this for 10 years. Okay, Julia, you're going to land on Toomey. And if it's raining, we're going to show you stuff in the rain. And I'm just like, dude, like, come on. Like that's not personalization. Like that's about as a personal as you can get. So I'm really excited to kind of challenge our own assumptions on this. And I will say this, there is a big tech investment needed to do this well. So I think that's where we're at is we're trying to understand what our platform is. But then when we do it, I'm confident we have the brains to do this in a pretty kick-ass way. Yeah. Get the WeChat, Snapchat. Bring it, (laughs) man. Like if you want to, if you want to Snapchat me for customer service, I hope we can pull that off, you know, and that's, that's the way we're trying to go. This is what I mean. Like as a 37 year old in Seattle, Washington, I can honestly say I have no intention of ever Snapchatting any customer service, but I bet you on a certain generation, there was a new generation moniker uh, given today, which is generation alpha, which are people that were born that lived entirely in this millennia born after 2010. I just think like what they're going to want to do in the context of customer service, you have to start thinking about right now, even if they're eight and nine years old today, you have to start thinking about what they're going to want right now. Cause if you do that, you have a chance to have a really, really cool customer experience. Yeah. Cause they're eight and nine on their iPhones, you know? Yeah. Well, they're thinking, on their they, iPhones. they've grown up just assuming that screens were part of everyday life. Like, that's crazy. Like when I grew up, I was like eating dirt. You know what I mean? Like it was just a different time. And so like, I, I think it's important to remember how life is changing and how that's going to change the entire customer journey. Yeah. You said that you had to go to the retention department. What streaming service did you adopt? Because I know there's so many out there. I just switched to Hulu plus. So I'm get- still working on it. I canceled CenturyLink. I'm trying to find, and look, if anybody listens to this and they have the bright idea on what I should do, I'm all ears. <laughs> I just want all the networks. I want ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox. I want TNT and TBS, and I want every single sports channel there is. And the closest I've seen is this one called FUBU, F-U-B-O TV, because Mm -hmm. honestly, all my wife and I watch is live sports. Like, that's all we want, is that we want to be able to watch live sports and occasionally, like, Jeopardy, you know? So, like, that's all I want. Occasional Jeopardy. Yeah, Yeah. well, because we we were joking. We're like, do we want USA? Because one of the other things we do is when we're feeling lazy, we'll watch reruns of NCIS or Law & Order SVU. And we were asking ourselves, like, do we really need that? Like, we have been doing something so much more productive with our time. But live sports, I think, are, like, the one thing I want. So I am all ears. If it's Hulu, I'm down. I got to figure that out. So I'm asking your listeners to help me out on that. Yeah, we'll see if they have any suggestions. I will I, say we have I, both. Uh, the FUBU one, we have a friend's login. So oh, okay. <laughs> it's pretty That's great, good. too, I will say. My wife and I are uh, volleyball players, and we love watching beach volleyball. That's on Amazon Prime for AVP, but everything else is on the Olympic channel. So FUBU has the Olympic channel. So it is amazing. Like, it's amazing that 
I now know what I want and I can go into the internet and be like, I want this things. And they're the leader in the clubhouse today. Sure. Well, I hope uh, we have some recommendations for you. And thanks for being on the show today. I had a really interesting conversation. I'd love to meet up in person sometime if we cross paths or show or wherever it may be. Thanks for that. All right. Thanks, Charlie. Bye. You've been listening to Rethink Retail. For all the latest news on commerce and trends, join the discussion, rethink.industries.com.